Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week's podcast is sponsored by our friends at Cycle Oregon at cycleoregon.com. We've been talking to a lot of event organizers, both on our Facebook and Instagram feeds and also on the podcast, and just kind of going through the struggles that they're all experiencing with the global pandemic, having to delay events and everything. I hope everybody's remaining optimistic about a fall and winter schedule this year, because it's going to be important that we come out in droves and support the event organizers. On previous podcasts, I've spoken about Cycle Oregon's Gravel Weekend that's now in October, and also last week introduced you to their classic event. But what I wanted to highlight this week is Cycle Oregon's investment in the community. They've awarded over 325 grants, totaling $2.3 million through the community and signature grants. So much like many of these rural events are infusing local economies with riders and athletes spending time and money in these rural communities, Cycle Oregon is looking at Oregon holistically and investing via their grants in a lot of different programs that make it a great place to ride. So check out those events again at cycleoregon.com. Make sure if you're putting an inquiry in to put TGR for the gravel ride to let them know you found out about us here. And definitely look at that gravel event. It looks like some amazing terrain there in the Thai Valley. And before we jump into this week's guest, I just wanted to give a big thank you to everybody who donated to the Gravel Ride podcast via buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. It means a ton to me to kind of get some of these overhead costs offset by both sponsorship and listener contributions. So big thanks again to everybody who's contributed, and there's still plenty of time. This isn't a fundraising drive. Just head over to buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride if you're enjoying what we're doing here. Speaking of what we're doing here this week, we've got an awesome guest. We've got Frank Overton from Fast Cath Coaching out in Boulder, Colorado. You may be familiar with Frank's voice from their awesome podcast under the Fast Cat name. Uh, definitely check it out because in addition to what we talk about today, they have tons of episodes drilling deep into some of the things we're going to be talking about. I have to say one of the things that really kind of got me jazzed about talking to Frank was their whole concept of winning in the kitchen as a master's age athlete. You know, it's been a constant struggle, not only to maintain form via coaching or via plan, but also thinking about it holistically, thinking about on and off the bike training. And Frank and his team do a really great job of kind of putting that in perspective. And while Frank and his team coach elite level athletes, They've also got plenty of rank and file athletes such as myself that'll follow plans and really just try to maximize the fun factor of these gravel events. I think one thing that we highlight, it's different than going out and racing a 45 minute crit. When you're tackling one of these gravel events, that's a hundred mile plus long. You really got to dig in and get your training done because most of us can't come off the couch and successfully complete that in a fun and healthy way. So I really dig what Frank's saying, along with some of the other coaches that he has on staff that come on the podcast periodically. So with that, let's dive right in with Frank Overton and Fast Cat Coaching. Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Craig. Pleasure to be here. Right on. We always start off by learning a little bit more about the cycling background of our guests and how they first came to riding drop our bikes off-road. So how'd you get started? 
1995, I graduated college and I got a job within three weeks of uh, graduating. I came home from work the first day, five o'clock, and I sat on the couch and like ate chips and watched TV. Woke up the next day, said, I'm not doing that again. And uh, I played tennis in, in high school and college and, you know, like NCAA, all that. And you need two people to play tennis. So when I got to a new town, a new job, um, came home that second day, and I didn't have anyone or know anyone to play tennis with. So I had a mountain bike that I used for commuting, and I rode it around the neighborhood. And the neighborhood rides, I started to go a little bit further away, a little bit further away. And it was all on pavement. And I actually was riding on the sidewalk until someone yelled at me. And then I started riding on the road and, you know, 30 minutes turned into 45, turned into 60. And then I rode over to a bike shop and said, where are the trails? And cause it was a mountain bike. And um, lo and behold, one of the guys that I went to college with owned the bike shop. And he, he took me under his wing a little bit enough to like say, Hey man, you need to get a helmet. And uh, here, you need to get these these shoes. But anyway, this is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I started riding in the woods after work and uh, loved it. And that, that, that's how I got started. I, the other way I got started, sorry to be long-witted right off the bat, is when I was 11 and 12, I would come home from school. And my parents, you know, I would go out in the neighborhood and play. This is before uh, phones and everything. I was a free-range kid. and I had friends from school that lived in different neighborhoods and I had a lot of friends in my neighborhood that we would all play. And I had this, like, I don't know, like a Sears 10 speed um, bike that my parents had bought me. And I started riding that to neighborhoods other than my own after school to go play like basketball and, and, and like, you know, pick up flag football and, my parents would always let me go wherever I wanted to on, they didn't even know how far I was going. So the bike was a lot of, a lot of freedom for me to go um, ride to different neighborhoods to, you know, do other sports. So that slippery slope and love of just pedaling around the neighborhood ultimately led you to racing mountain bikes and road bikes, right? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, because you've done it as a kid and then you start doing it uh, for exercise after, you know, in your adult life. I got started in mountain biking later in life. You know, I didn't do it in high school. This is before NICA and, that, and I didn't do it in, in college. So back to the woods in Winston-Salem and my friend at that bike shop, you know, I went back like the second time and he's like, hey, you know, you should come and race with us. And, uh, I, you know, I was like, yeah, let, let's do it. And he was an expert mountain biker and I was a beginner. And he said, okay, you can, you can ride with us. You can get a ride with us. And I wasn't going to go to the race by myself. Cause I didn't even know where to go or what to do, but he was leaving at 8 AM for the, uh, like 10 AM expert race. And uh, he's like, well, you got to do this one if you go with us. Because, like, my race, the beginner race was, like, later in the day, but I wasn't going by myself. So I kind of, like, just dove, you know, 
right in and, uh, you know, trial by fire. And I was hooked. I loved it. And, you know, I, I kept doing it and it just kind of, um, yeah, blew up from there. And then ultimately you raced semi-pro on the mountain bike and cat one on the road. That's right. Um, yeah, fast forward, whatever, six to seven years raced for, uh, the Schwinn homegrown, uh, grassroots team raced for, uh, specialized Nantucket Neckers for a year. And, um, and then the Richie, um, grassroots mountain bike team, um, in 2002. And I broke my hand at the Northern national in Alpine Valley. It's the same place where Stevie Ray Garn's helicopter crashed. And, uh, I like, I was like pre-riding the course. I was like in the best shape of my life. I was going to use that race to get my pro upgrade. Um, and lo and behold, you know, just stupid crash riding in the woods. And I put my hand right on a baby head rock and just folded over the, the metacarpals. And, uh, you know, so I couldn't race, but I'm in like really good shape. And I, I use this expression with my athletes, you know, my legs were not broken and, uh, got on the trainer and, you know, this is like right around, you know, I'd always done road racing and crits, you know, for training in between the, the mountain bike races, the Northern national circuit and like the, the corpse mountain bike series in, in Colorado, the cross country series. And this is also right around during the Lance wave when road racing was cool, kind of like the way gravel is now. I mean, it was the thing to do is like what all the mountain bikers were getting into. Cause it was just, you know, awesome. And there was a lot of opportunities. So I went to super week that year, um, at, with a broken hand because I could put my, my thumb around the STI lever and I could still race. I mean, I was like in really good shape. I couldn't um, wrap my hand around the bar, but I could, you know, hold the, the right STI lever with my thumb. So I go to super week, you know, race for two weeks in a row, love it, come back home. And then I just drove myself out to the cascade bicycle race in Oregon, loved it. And, uh, you know, I didn't really do that well, but I, and I could hold my own in the, the pro one, two field. So in 2002, um, the mountain bike sponsorship dried up. And prior to that, it was like gravy train. I mean, you know, they were giving people like me cash money and you know, two bikes and, you know, all the equipment we needed. But after nine 11 and the dot com boom and the combination of the Lance wave, um, there wasn't as many opportunities. I really didn't have a team for, 2003. So I decided to race on the road. I mean, it's the same thing that gravel racers are doing now, just different disciplines. So I, um, I turned to racing on the road in 2003, you know, did, uh, you know, a lot of the NRC counter events, Redlands and Solano, Central Valley Classic, uh, Gila, Cascade, obviously Super Week. Uh, it was called Dairy, Dairy Land. Um, all those races. And uh, it was during that time what else? Oh, in 2002, also because of the dot-com boom and 9-11, I lost my job as a, in biotechnology. Biotechnology was incredibly volatile back then. And most of the companies that I worked for were startups. So I was like employee number 12 at, at the longest running company I worked at. But um, the market tanked and funding dried up and layoffs happened. And one thing I realized in biotech is, 
every time you go to a new company, it, it takes about six months to learn new technology. And the other thing I learned was uh, there's two types of people in biotechnology, those with their PhD and those without. And I was without because I had chosen to ride my bike <laughs> a lot more in life than to uh, spend time in the lab in the in the library. And so I realized I needed to do something different. And I decided I, uh, I was, that's when I got into coaching in 2002. I was in between uh, biotechnology jobs. I was training full time to be a, a road racer, to try to be a, a professional level road racer. And yeah, that's when I got the help of a friend. I built a website, wrote some training tips, came up with a logo and a name. And um, yeah, that's when it all got, yeah, that's when Fast Cat Coaching got started. And had you gotten some coaching previously in any of the sort of semi-pro and pro racing you were doing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was coached by a fellow by the name of Dave Morris. Hi Dave, shout out. Dave was a exercise physiologist. He worked on project 96 for any of the old timers out there. Project 96 was the title of the project given to, um, basically the team charged with winning gold medals at the Atlanta 1996 Olympic games. And he worked down in Colorado Springs in the, uh, human performance laboratory. And he, you know, Dave was one of the first coaches. He's a peer of Chris Carmichael and Dean Golich from, from that era. And he had written a book. I think the name of it was like racers ready. Anyway, Dave was coaching some people and in, in, in 98, I, I like trained as hard as I could and I didn't really get any better. And at the end of that season, I was like, I got to hire a coach and man, I had to like call around. I mean, this is like, I called, Dean Crandall, who put me in touch with Dean Golich, who said he was too busy. And that was back when in coaching where you had to like, you had to like be good enough to be coached for a coach to take you on. And I was like a no name, but um, Dave was trying to make some money and he had an affordable coaching. And I was coached by Dave for like four years and went from a sport class mount biker, you know, all the way up to like cat one, you know, borderline professional mountain bike level. Yeah. It's interesting. You hear that story a lot when people just have the raw talent and get it organized by a coach to kind of progress to that next level. So that's an interesting tale of how you came to founding FastCat. I should note, as I mentioned in the intro, that you guys have been producing a, a really great podcast. How long has it been? A couple of years on that? Oh, thanks. Uh, it has been... 84 episodes in May of 2018. So a um, little over, let's see, hey, we're coming up on two years here this May. That's awesome. I think, it, you know, what's, it, what's interesting to me is you guys put out such depth of information on your site and the, it's sort of a lot of it's freely available, a lot of great plans out there. And obviously you guys offer customized coaching. A couple of the episodes that really kind of grabbed hold of me, and I got a ton of questions for you about a variety of subjects, but there, there was the concept of winning in the supermarket and winning in the kitchen that really resonated with me as someone who feels like he consistently fails in those departments. 
Can you talk about just a, a touch on, on that philosophy and where you guys are coming from with that? Absolutely. Well, um, in, when I hired uh, Dave as my coach, you know, we did uh, one season, 98, 99, completely didn't even pay attention to nutrition. In fact, I was losing in the grocery store. I was losing in the, in the kitchen. And, you know, one day in 1999, you know, Dave introduced the, the concept of power to weight ratio to me. And then, you know, I talked to some of my teammates and I, and I looked around and, um, you know, it, it turns out uh, power to weight ratio is one of the greatest determinants of performance in the type of racing that I was doing, which was mountain biking, which was a lot of climbing. And to, uh, you know, go up these hills faster, you had to weigh less. And, uh, you know, so I started paying attention to my nutrition and, and in October of, uh, um, I guess that was like 2000. I started, uh, you know, eating more salads, more vegetables. Um, you know, I still had no clue what I was doing. Um, you know, this is 20 years ago. Um, but I, but back then I was, you know, you're young, um, you know, you're, you produce, you know, your endocrine system is still, you know, you know, firing away and, and it's really easy to lose weight as like, you know, a 28, 30 year old compared to when you're 48 or, you know, in your fifties when your um, endocrine system has slowed down tremendously. And so, um, you know, I got really skinny and got really fast. And that's how I upgraded up to, you know, being a semi-pro and a cat one. And I really didn't make that much more power. I mean, I got more powerful, but really the biggest, the, you know, the huge leap that I took was from losing weight. And so that's the impetus behind uh, winning in the kitchen. Um, it's super important. And, Really, it just comes down to a lot of guys think they can just ride more and eat less. And um, that's what you can do in your 20s, but that is not the, the path uh, to long-term sustainable success. You know, when you're a master's athlete, you, in your 30s, maybe you can kind of get away from it or you know, kind of blend the two. But, you know, for many years, it was the Eddie Merckx, ride more, eat less. Um, but really... 80% of weight loss comes from healthy food choices that emanate from the kitchen, thus winning in the kitchen. And uh, really 20% of weight loss is, uh, you know, just from rotting more like, you know, like rotting a ton of hours, like what you could do when you're in your twenties. So it really just comes down to eating more vegetables, eating more fruits, um, you know, staying away from added sugar, uh, partially hydrogenated fat, saturated fat. You know, it's really simple. One of my teammates from back in the day, the Richie team, he had a, a term that I adopted. He said, there's two types of food. There's the go fast kind and there's the go slow kind. And I guarantee you, everyone listening right now can uh, put a label on either. And so really it's just paying attention to the go fast foods and, um, you know, going to the grocery store, choosing those foods and, uh, you know, trying to win in the kitchen and it's a healthy lifestyle. Um, and I could go on and on and on, um, about that because we do in our podcast. Yeah. Now I encourage people to go back and listen to those episodes of your podcast. Cause I, f I found it interesting. I think it, it's pretty easy for us as kind of middle-aged athletes, masters athletes to look around and think about what we're eating and, realize the percentage of go slow foods to go fast foods is highly skewed in the go slow category. And, you <laughs> know, right. you know, 
clearly, I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, most of most of the gravel athletes that are listening to this, I suspect, are out there for the adventure. They're taxing their bodies. They're going for these big events like Dirty Kanza. But at the same token, you know, they're not trying to be a skeleton Chris Froome type athlete. It's just not important to them. It's important for them to get to the finish line. So there's, you know, there's clearly some balance there of, of enjoying life, but also, you know, making those choices that'll enable you to be more efficient on the bike and have more success at these long distance events. That's right. And, and success at the event comes from the second part of the winning in the kitchen uh, philosophy and, and approach is you got to fuel your workouts and fuel your, your long distance rides. And, you know, back then I would, you know, put five, uh, you know, gels in my pocket and, you know, suck those down every 30 minutes. But nowadays, you know, we talk about gels, blocks, bars every 30 minutes. We talk about making rice cakes from uh, scratch labs and Dr. Alan Lim. Here we talk about, um, you know, just eating well proportioned meals before and after and, and, and all that. And everyone that does these races, these long races, you know, where they can all, they, they probably want to lose five or 10 pounds. They may not want to get down to, you know, 7% body fat, but that, you know, as you age, your, your body just, it's a natural tendency to put on more, more fat and store fat. And, and, you know, you'd neglect that for a few years. And then you're, you know, that's when you got the spare tire. And when you do, decide to choose more go fast foods and try to win in the kitchen. And that's where this can come in. Cause we don't advocate like dieting and like, you know, restricting calories. We just advocate eating more, really just eating more fruits and vegetables and greens and, and, and making those go fast food choices. Yeah. And I think that's where I am as an athlete. It's really, I, I just would like to start making better choices at the beginning of 2019. I became a vegetarian which has helped, but I found that just being a vegetarian doesn't necessarily mean you, you make good food choices. So 2020 is about kind of combining that with a little bit better choices. And, you know, one of the things I I struggle with, and I wanted to kind of get your opinion as, as a coach is, you know, as a, as a family man, as someone who works for a living, my time windows are off often outside of my control. So, you know, I think about getting on a training program but then I think to myself, okay, in, in any given week or any given month, my long ride window may open up serendipitously. So it may be on the program that I'm, I'm supposed to be resting this week, but all of a sudden I have a five-hour block of time because my wife has decided to take my son somewhere. How do you kind of work with athletes who are, are grappling with the, the challenges of time opportunity versus training schedules? Well, I mean, the first thing that we try to do is teach and not tell, um, in that I would tell you, or as I you know, contradict myself, I would teach you to just go for it. You, when you have that five hour window of opportunity, first of all, go for it because that that's what you, you know, need and want to do. And then just figure out everything, you know, downstream as far as the training plan goes. So it's, you're the type of athlete that would benefit from like a coaching relationship to be taught that. And, and, and a lot of, we, a lot of athletes are like, well, I'm not ready for that. And then, so we have these training plans, 
And in these training plans, we obviously you have the long ride and we have a, a private athlete forum where um, we have figured out a way to kind of teach athletes if they do want have questions, just like for the, you know, the conundrum that you just presented. And it's like, how do I follow the plan, but still, you know, adopt to these. And it's just really just asking the question and, and in training piece, you know, moving your workouts around is a simple uh, left click drag and drop in the software. And you move like your long ride to like a Friday instead of a Saturday or a Sunday instead of a Saturday. And then you just, you know, you just work, work your way through the plan. We teach consistency. Um, you know, we do have the hashtag FTFP, which is follow the bleep and plan, which is a derivation of the Bellaminati rule number five in HTFU. Um, we joke about that, but we also use that as an opportunity to teach people good training habits and to be flexible with themselves. So like you may be coming from the, the angle, I've got to follow this plan just right. Maybe you're like a perfectionist. But really what you want to do is be flexible with yourself and just go for it and then, you know, kind of adjust your rest days around that opportunity. Right. The other thing I have is, you know, I I often work in San Francisco four days a week and I commute in from Mill Valley. So I've got this sort of hour long, not certainly not junk miles because I'm enjoying going through Sausalito and over the Golden Gate Bridge, but it's not pure training. And then I have the opportunity to ride home in the evening. So, you know, there's the potential for me to be riding two hours in any one of those days, but to date, it's just sort of been plot along, you know, not put any more effort in or less effort than is required by the terrain in front of me. Okay. So I have an athlete that lives in Mill Valley and he works in San Francisco. So we worked that into his, his training plan. He's a die. I wouldn't say he's a diehard commuter. He just enjoys it. I mean, why would you want to, you know, sit in traffic across the Golden Gate Bridge when you can ride across it? Super good weather. It's pleasurable. I mean, I've ridden across the Golden Gate Bridge. It was scary as heck with the tourists oncoming and the crosswinds. But other than that, it's a great view and um, a lovely way to maybe, you know, commute to and from work. What I would say to you, and this is the teaching moment, is and this, this is, I think we were corresponding by email it, about this. It's like, what are you training for? Identify the demands and the requirements for performance in that event, and then back that up to, to what you should be doing in your training. And say you were training for like a dirty Kanza or any other gravel event out there. Um, you got to have a really good aerobic in, endurance. Um, you need to ride your bike a lot. You know, like the Omni p- podcast that we just, uh, uh recorded with her she rides her bike a lot therefore that's why she is good at riding 200 miles and you don't have to ride your bike a lot on just one day you just need to ride your bike a lot over time six months and so getting back to your commute riding two hours a day four to five times a week totally fits in with trying to ride a lot over the course of of six six months in preparation from any gravel event I mean, during that time, at the very least, you can spend time in zone two. That's aerobic endurance, increase your mitochondrial density. You know, that's the foundation of all gravel racing. And then I think there is a climb. I don't know the name of it, but as you kind of head south from Sausalito and Mill Valley and start to go 
up to the bridge, you can get in a like good eight to 10 minutes of like, you can do tempo, you can do sweet spot, you can do threshold, you can do like five minute work up Hawk Hill, you know, before you cross the bridge. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you might just need to take like a 20 minute detour. Um, but I, the, the athlete that I worked with, his name is Sean. Um, we were, we were always coming up with these like custom workouts, like, okay, you'll do like threshold work on the way to, on the way to work, but then ride zone two on the way home. And then the next day ride zone two to work, but on the way back, let's do this tempo. So it's just kind of getting creative, but I would say overall, um, staying consistent and trying to ride your bike a lot in a flexible manner is going to net you greater gains than, than, you know, trying to do like a six hour ride, um, you know, once one day a week, like consistency is king. And I would just encourage you to commute as much as possible. Yeah. We've also got the luxury here. We can head into, um, Tennessee Valley and actually ride the gravel pretty much all the way to the golden gate bridge. And there's plenty of add on opportunities so there's a number of people who do what what's referred to around here as the dirty commute where we head off road, which is pretty, uh-huh. it's pretty incredible to kind of have that experience and then drop into the golden gate bridge and be downtown in the financial district for work an hour later. Makes me want to move to the Bay area or Mill Valley. <laughs> I know you've enjoyed it out here, the riding. So I, I, it's not lost on me that we're blessed, but as are you in Boulder, I spent a number of years out there and, and, I love it. It's so much fun. We are. We live in great places. The other thing I grapple with is, um, and this kind of goes on with opportunism uh, around my time windows, is I, you know, I often get last-minute opportunities to ride events, whether it's locally or you know, even traveling a little bit. So I struggle with kind of choosing an A event. And for me, like the concept of A events is, is almost irrelevant. At the end of the day, I want to experience new gravel. I want to enjoy the gravel community wherever I am. So I was trying to think back as to in, in last year, I think I did maybe four or five kind of 60 to a hundred mile events around the country. And there wasn't much rhyme or reason to them. And, and to your earlier point, I did feel like all my commuting miles enabled me without any structure whatsoever to kind of get to the finish line and enjoy those long events. But any, any further advice in that category of like someone who is opportunistically taking these, these event opportunities and isn't really focused on anyone in particular? Yeah, I have two answers for you that kind of parallel with each other. Um, the, the first thing is I would encourage you to choose an, an, an A event. And um, you may want to like, like we did a whole podcast on this um, a, a couple of years ago in the fall about choosing your A event. And because we, we were introducing the term A event, B event, C event to our, to our listeners. And, you know, really, I think everyone knows what we we're talking about. Like an A event is your dirty Kansas 200 um, or your lost and found or your crusher in the tusher, BWR, um, you know, mid South, you know, steamboat gravel, that, that sort of thing. Um, those are the races that you dream about that when you're on a long ride and you're wondering what you're doing in life, you, you fall back to remembering what you're training for. Um, they're, they're the races that, that motivate you. And, um, 
they're fun. And, and uh, for years, um, the crusher and the tusher was my a race. And that's what uh, motivated me prior to the crusher and the tusher. Um, the big bear Norba national was, uh, the, that was the first mountain bike race of the year that kicked off the Norba season. And that's what, you know, got me through the winter. Um, you know, when I was, you know, lifting heavy in the gym, doing intervals, riding long, you know, that's your reason. I think Rebecca Rush calls that what's your why, you know, that, that's the, that's the A race. Um, but then for your B race isn't kind of your spontaneous, um, you know, nature, uh, well, yeah, you know, definitely go for them and, you know, participate. They, so I would call those your B races. And the, uh, the other thing I would say, you may be like, well, I don't have an A race or, you know, life doesn't really fit in with that. And then that's okay. You know, keep going, you know, through your journey in, in gravel racing. And one of these days, life will open up. You'll not be as busy. Um, and you'll be like, oh, I'm going to, this is my goal. I'm going to go for it. And it may be like, a, like, like last year I had an athlete do the Dirty Kansas 200. And, um, he, he completed that. And then this year, the rift in Iceland is his big, big goal. And that's what's, he lives in Pennsylvania and he, you know, it's not the greatest weather, but, um, you know, the, the idea of being, um, his best in, in, in Iceland, you know, keeps him, keeps him going. And maybe that's for you. And it's not something that I can tell you, uh, as your goal, it's something that you're going to just come up with one day or think about and, or decide upon. Am I answering your question? <laughs> you, you are. And I, I mean, it, it has posed some sort of questions for me and I had been a bit hurt with a back problem throughout the winter. So it kind of had put my 2020 plans in question as to what I was excited about and what I really wanted to do. I, I'm, I'm thinking for me, Rebecca's private Idaho might be my, my sort of a race for the year and build the season around that. So now that you have an A race, someone like me, I mean, I can go to town. I mean, now we have a time frame. you know, that's Labor Day. That's uh, where we have March, April, May, June, July, August. That's six months away, 24 weeks. You know, now, now from someone like me, it's like, okay, you should do this, this, and this um, to prepare. Um, you have the opportunity to build your base, like we, you know, from commuting, you, know, you don't want to neglect interval training, you know, threshold, you know, there is a 20 minute climb that uh, starts off Rebecca's private Idaho uh, course. And after that climb, there's a big selection. It's a bunch of chunky gravel after that. So your power to weight ratio is, is big and important. And you want to work on your threshold power to get over that climb in the best possible um group and selection and time. And so, you know, being in Mill Valley, you have an awesome 20 minute climb. So then you can structure your, your training going up and down Mount Tam and Alpine Dam. And um, yeah, it, so then, but it also helps you periodize your motivation. And we always say, you know, training for these races is kind of like uh, crescendo and, and piano. You know, you start off small and gradually get louder and louder and louder as you get, uh, you know, towards, uh, uh, the Rebecca's date. Yeah. And I think that's a good schedule for me this year, just because sort of coming off this back injury, I want to make sure I'm healthy before I'm really firing and, and working too hard. 
What I appreciated on your site, in addition to all the great video and podcast content, was that you did have specific training plans that people can purchase for specific events. I thought that that was really cool. When someone's getting into the plan, and let's say, for example, they, they don't actually have power on their bike, how do, how do you begin that process of setting whatever kind of measurement or milestone you need to set at the beginning of the process? Yeah, so we get this question a lot, do I need a power meter to follow your plan? The answer is no. All of our plans are zone-based, so zone two. You can do zone two training uh, by feel, a rate of perceived exertion. You can do it by heart rate, using a heart rate monitor, and that's relatively affordable. I think you can get like a Wahoo ticker for $50, and that's like the top of the line. And um, so heart rate-based training is tremendous. It's very, very good. Um, and then, of course, there's the power meter. And you can get a power meter for $350. I think Stages has some um, nice, uh, affordable options. They're, one of their slogans is the power meter for everyday, the everyday cyclist, not necessarily you know, world tour level. But anyway, so you have zones, and the training plan teaches you how to use those zones. On the second day of a lot of our training plans, we'll have you perform a very simple an extremely effective um, test. We call it a field test. You do it out in the field. You don't need a lab. You don't need, you know, lactate or, or VO2. But, and, and you can do it with zero technology, which some of our athletes do. I learned this from um, Alan Lim when he was working with uh, some of the um, world tour guys. But basically, you go to a hill and you go up it as fast as you can for 20 minutes. And when the clock strikes 20 minutes, you, you like put an X down on the pavement or the climb, put a rock or notice which mailbox you're next to or tree. And then you go off and you do some training. You win in the kitchen, you weigh less, you, you know, you get more uh, powerful, you increase your numerator and decrease your denominator power to weight ratio is, is better. And then you go back to that same climb and you go up it just as hard. And then you measure how much further you got past that log or X or mailbox that you got on the previous time. And so that's like the super low tech way. And we, we teach athletes, you know, how to, how to do zone based training and, and really, you know, sweet spot, very good uh, with power meter or heart rate zone two, you can do it um, rate of perceived exertion, um, VO two max threshold zone six, Really, that's just as hard as you can. You don't need a power meter or a heart rate monitor to do that style of training. Um, it sure is nice to to measure it and look at it afterwards, the analysis, that, that piece. The main attraction for a power meter for me would be just kind of getting that satisfaction of seeing some numbers move. The other thing I see referenced a lot in your plans and conversations is this concept of sweet spot. What, what exactly are you referring to there? <laughs> So sweet spot is a, uh, it's a zone. It's a style of training. It is a percentage of your functional threshold power, which is another fancy pocket protector term for your threshold, which is what I was just describing. You find in a, in a 20 minute field test, it's uh, technically it's 84 to 97% of your FTP. And it is the place in your physiology where the stress is at a sweet spot in relation to the, the, the strain. And I think I misspoke on that. It's where the benefits of that work physiologically 
are in proportion with uh, the the physiological cost. Like the you know like when you go do a hard hard ride, you get benefits from it, but then you're like you know you're tired, your muscles are sore, you know you can't really ride that fast for a couple of days afterwards. That's the strain, and and the benefit is what you happened you know during that hard ride. But sweet spot training is asking athletes to not go as hard as they can and to be able to do a lot of that training for a less uh, physiological um, amount of stress. And that enables them to get what we've, you know, kind of like, I guess, like the slogan of sweet spot, more bang for your buck. And so it's, you get more physiological benefits than by riding in zone two. Um, but you, and then you benefit more than from doing full on threshold training. So, um, yeah, that, that's what sweet spot training is. Um, I developed sweet spot training in 2003 to 2005 with a group of coaches and sports scientists, uh, people like Dr. Andy Coggin, um, Hunter Allen, who I listened to your podcast. That was really good. Um, and then, you know, just like some other coaches like John Verhuel, Adam Meyerson, uh, Olympic silver medalist, uh, Brian Walton was in this group. And, you know, this is before all this, uh, that was when power-based technology and was unknown. There was no technology or sports science behind it. And we figured it out. And one of the things that came out of that was sweet spot training. We were using sweet spot training to build um, big aerobic engines to help us go fast. We were all using our own data and developing our own training methods um, to uh, validate this performance manager chart that um, is a, a big piece of the training peak software now. And uh, yeah, so I wrote about it in 2005 on a website called Pez Cycling News, introduced it to the world. And um, I started uh, uh, prescribing sweet spot training to um all the athletes that I coached, guys like uh, Tom Zerbel and Allison Powers. Um, Ted King did a lot of sweet spot training. I coached him back then. Um, you know, Frank Pitt, you know, a lot of, lot, of, lot of athletes, and they got really fast from it. And that, that's kind of how I made a, a name for myself um, when I was coming up in the, the coaching world. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, for the listener, again, I encourage you to check out Frank's podcast and check out his website because there's a ton of backstory to everything we've been talking about today. I know you've given me a lot to think about for 2020, and I think this would be a really good year for me to kind of buckle down and just try to add some structure to my gravel cycling as I kind of enter maybe my third or fourth year doing the gravel thing. So, Frank, thanks so much for all the great content you're putting out and for the th time today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. And I would say if you have any further questions, feel free to ask me. Um, I love helping people. I mean, that's kind of like our mission. That's one of the joys of being in the, the coaching realm is we get to help people with something that they're passionate about, just like us, which is uh, cycling and nowadays a lot, of, a lot of gravel and long distance riding. So yeah, um, it's a dream dream come true to be able to do this for a living. Yeah, I bet. And I think it's, again, it's great takeaways from this podcast to anybody listening is if you're tackling your first gravel event or maybe your first kind of ultra distance event like DK 200, I think there's a lot of these gains that can be made very simply if you can kind of 
step back and think about it because they are super taxing these events in a way that just kind of jumping into a local 45 minute long crit never taxes the body. <laughs> That's right. I mean, crits you can fake, but um, a gravel race you cannot. And being prepared for these gravel races is just so fun. Um, and, and, and having, you know, six months of work culminate and having a great ride. That's, that's a, a, a rewarding experience. And, and I also know this from experience, personal experience, you know, doing a hundred mile or challenging gravel event underprepared, that's not fun. And we're doing this for fun. And, uh, you know, what we always say is, as uh, uh, fast is funner. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Frank. You're welcome, Craig. Thank you again for having me on. Big thanks to Frank for joining the podcast this week. And thanks again to Cycle Oregon for being our sponsor. And to any of you who donated to buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. If you're looking for other ways to support the pod, ratings and reviews are critical to how our discovery works on iTunes and other platforms. So take a minute and give us a five-star review and give us a comment. I read everything that comes through and I really enjoy hearing where you're from and what your thoughts are and any ideas as to who we should have for future guests. One final note, I just wanted to highlight, give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram We've been having some great conversations, some of which will become podcasts ultimately, but others are just kind of checking in with people in the industry and athletes all over the world to see how they're weathering the storm. I think we all need a little bit more connectivity and closeness. So I, I love talking to people online via these platforms and getting your feedback in real time for what types of questions you'd like to hear about. So definitely check us out. Just search for The Gravel Ride. I think you'll recognize the logo on Instagram and Facebook. We've got some stuff this week if you're listening on a Tuesday. So definitely join me over there. And until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>